Well, I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving with family and friends. Um, I don't know about you, but I feel like every year Thanksgiving is like getting hijacked more and more, right? It's like you can't help but be bombarded by advertisements, and these, these stores are now opening on Thursday. It seemed like last year it was at least midnight, right, the turn of the day, like at least let's honor Thanksgiving for 24 hours, but now it's like 6 p.m., Black Friday starts, wait, that's Thursday, something is wrong. Anyway, um, it's, it's just amazing how quickly our minds and hearts are drawn away from the purpose of the holiday and what it's meant to do. But uh, I don't know about you, but experientially, Thanksgiving is kind of historically for me been the warm-up for Christmas, right? It's like, it's like the pregame. It's like the stretch. Let's stretch out our stomach because we're going to be eating a lot for the next month. The day after Thanksgiving, I'm driving in the car, the radio starts to play Christmas songs. Go in the coffee shop, Christmas music. Go in the grocery store, Christmas music. Like, the second Thanksgiving is over, it's Christmas, right? Anyone else have this experience? Anyone put up the tree on Friday? Okay, good, good, good. Yeah, Christmas or Thanksgiving uh, kind of gets hijacked and quickly forgotten, But here's the thing. The reality is for us, God has wired this way. And if you look through all the scriptures, you see that we are people who are motivated by anticipation, right? As as Thanksgiving, we anticipated it for a little while, but it's over. So what's next? What's the next big thing that we get to celebrate? But how should we as Christians, how should we anticipate this holiday season different than the way the world may anticipate what the season is about. We're going to spend this Advent season uh, not only looking back on what God has done in fulfilling his promise that Christ would be born and that he would live, that he would die and he would rise again, but also looking at his future promise that Jesus is coming again. We need to be reminded regularly that this place is not our home, that our home is in heaven, and we have uh, an eternity to look forward to that makes any experience in this life just pale in comparison to what is ahead of us. And so the main idea for us this morning, you have in your notes there, is this, is that we can joyfully anticipate our future hope as we reflect on God's past faithfulness. We can do it at the same time. We can be also remembering what he has done while Trusting and clinging to the promises that are yet to be fulfilled. Let's look at our future hope to start off. I want to begin at the end, if you will. One of Jesus' closest disciples was a man by the name of John. And John had the privilege of getting a vision into what the future would look like. And he wrote it down in the book of Revelation. And this was a picture of how John tried to put into words what he saw, what he heard, what he experienced when he got this glimpse into the future. Revelation chapter 7, starting in verse 9. He said, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
and all of the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne. The Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I wonder, as we read through that, what went on in your mind and in your heart. As we just got a glimpse of the future and God's people being in the throne room of God, what did that stir inside of you as you heard those words? Did it elicit any emotion? Was there any sense of anticipation? I want to be there. I can't wait for that day. Did it stir some curiosity? Did anyone get distracted maybe by these like four living creatures? You're like, huh, I wonder what those are going to look like. Can you see yourself there in the crowd? Does the thought of being there in the throne room of God make you smile? Here's reality, friends. The throne room of God is the place of perfect peace, unquenchable joy, everlasting life. And for everyone who is in Christ, this is your future. And it is the brightest, most hopeful future you could ever imagine. It says we're going to be clothed in white robes. Symbolic that we have completely been made pure. That we can now stand in the presence of the holy and living God. Because our sin has been completely dealt with. To be in the presence of our maker, free from the pain of hunger and thirst, free from the heartache of pain and suffering and tears and trials, provided with the springs of living water that God himself will give to us. If anything should captivate your imagination, it's this. If anything should elicit anticipation in your mind, in your heart, it is this. For this is the future hope for all who are patiently awaiting the second coming of Jesus Christ. He's going to take us home. Yeah, it's going to be a good day, to say the least. But the question we need to ask ourselves and the reality of all this is how do we know that this isn't just wishful thinking or just some fantasy made up by some guy a few thousand years ago? How can we actually believe this to be true in a way that changes the way that we live? 
Well, we do that through reflecting upon God's word and what has already unfolded in history. We look at the promises that God has already kept to recognize that he will keep every promise he has ever made. You see, the Old Testament is filled with clue after clue and prophecy after prophecy of, uh, of uh, God telling his people that I'm sending a rescuer. I'm sending a savior. Be ready. He's coming. I'm sending him. And one of these prophecies we see in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. Isaiah is a prophet of Israel. He wrote this 700 years prior to the birth of Christ. And here's what he wrote. He said, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So from this prophecy, we see that God longs to bring comfort to his people. God longs to deal tenderly with his people like a loving father would his children. And God's plan all the way back from the beginning was to send one who would pardon the sins of his people. To send one who would extend forgiveness and grace to a people who desperately need it. But before the one who would come and accomplish that, There would be a forerunner. We were promised that one would come and prepare the way. Almost like clearing the highway for the plane to land. And we're told this also in Malachi, written some 300 years later, but along the same lines. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord who you seek will suddenly come to his temple And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Twice, both those passages ended with basically, thus saith the Lord. Spoken promises from the mouth of God. This is going to happen. So on more than one occasion, the Old Testament prophesies that one is going to come to prepare the way for Jesus. One is going to come raising the flag. Get ready. He's coming. Be ready. Prepare yourselves. And then we see in Matthew 3, 1 through 3, the fulfillment of those prophecies. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John the Baptist is the forerunner. He is the one preparing the way. And here was John, this kind of crazy dressed guy who ate off the land. You know, it says he ate uh, locusts and honey. He's just out preaching in the wilderness. And many people today would see that and be like, what a crazy man. What is he doing? But drones and drones of people throughout Jerusalem and Judea came out to see John preach because he's just out in the middle of nowhere preaching. 
The kingdom of God is here. Repent. Get yourself ready. Put your spiritual radar up because the Messiah is on his way. John was declaring this message and telling the people, be ready. It's coming. It's here. The promised Christ. Luke 3, 15 through 16, we see that the people were waiting in expectation and anticipation. It says this, verse 15, As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. And John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So here we see the people like, hey, everyone's going out to see John. He is preaching. He's declaring the kingdom of God. Something is happening. Maybe he's the Christ. And John very quickly corrects him and says, no, 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 no. You got it all wrong. I'm just a servant. The Savior's coming after me. I'm merely a servant to prepare the way, to declare to you that God is moving right now in our midst Pay attention. And after John's death and his ministry transitioned over to Jesus, we see this promised Christ enter into his temple. And here's one of those interactions found in Matthew chapter 21. It says, When he entered the temple, as Malachi prophesied he would, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him and he was teaching and they said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will also ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's the question. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed this among themselves, saying, Well, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, Then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's Jesus the long-awaited, promised Messiah in his temple. This whole temple is meant to be a picture of him. This is about him. This is a beacon unto him for the Jewish people. And the religious leaders of the day are seeing all the stuff Jesus is doing, and they don't like it. And they're questioning him. Who do you think you are to do these things? By what authority are you are you disturbing the commerce in the temple? And are you doing these miracles and all this stuff that you're doing? What are you doing? Answer us, Jesus. You see, the spiritual leaders of the day should have been anticipating his arrival and rejoicing more than anyone at his coming. And yet they were the biggest skeptics and critics of Jesus' ministry. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And we have to understand that these leaders are upset because Jesus is doing the same thing John the Baptist did. He was calling out their hypocrisy. He's saying to them, look, on the outside, you look like you have your act together. You're good, clean people. But on the inside, you're empty. It's shallow. You're not motivated 
to live a life to honor God. You want to receive praise from people, and you're using your spiritual authority as a platform to be respected and praised by others. Like, that is messed up. And these religious leaders hated the fact that the people were starting to listen to and follow Jesus more than them. The spotlight was not being shown on them anymore. They weren't being looked to as the spiritual gurus in the land. And they're upset about it. Very different attitude than John the Baptist, right? Where he said, oh, the one coming after me is mightier than I am. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandal. He is so great. These religious religious leaders thought they were great. And Jesus masterfully, by asking one question, just totally reveals the hearts of these leaders. He says this, was John's baptism from heaven or from man? Simple question, right? But it puts them into a frantic conversation of like, well, what do we do? If we say that John was from heaven, if God sent him, then, then we're going to have to uh, acknowledge that we believe that and we don't believe that, so we can't say that. But if then we say, oh, he's just some man, crazy man in the desert, all the people here believe he was a prophet, and we're going to totally lose our respect and credibility that's coming from them. What do we do? So he's throwing the towel, right? <laughs> like, oh, we don't know. Jesus is like, fine, then I'm not going to answer your question. It's amazing to me that Jesus in this moment reveals their disbelief while threatening their biggest idol. Reveals that they did not believe that John was from God, although everything pointed to the fact that he was. And it also threatened their biggest idol in that it was taking the attention off of them and putting it on the prophet of God, and the coming Christ. Jesus, after he stumps them, revealing their hearts, he goes on to tell this parable against them, and he declares to us who are the recipients of the kingdom of God. Verse 28 of Matthew 21. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first, and he said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered him, I will not. But afterwards he changed his mind, and he went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two sons did the will of his father? The religious leader said, the first. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collector and the prostitute go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collector and the prostitutes, they believed him. And then even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your mind and believe in him. So here's this parable of the two sons, right? One son gave lip service. Sure, dad, I'll do what you say. But then he doesn't do it. And then the other son says, no, I don't want to listen to you, dad. But then he comes to a sense. He's like, I'm going to go. I'm going to go and do what my father has asked. And Jesus says, which one has done the father's will? And they say, well, the one who actually went and worked. Jesus is like, okay, you're at least smart enough to get that right. And Jesus' main point in this parable is this, is that our actions speak way louder than our words. The religious leaders in this situation, 
They're, they're giving lip service. They're saying they're followers of God and that they're trying to honor God with his life, but their actions are proving completely different and they're not listening to the word of God. They're not responding to the prophet sent by God. When again, all the evidence surrounding him proved that John was from God. So here you see these men, they're trying to trap Jesus, they're trying to discredit Jesus because they don't believe he's Messiah, nor do they want him to be the Messiah. And then Jesus goes on to condemn them with this parable, but he adds a little insult to injury when he says, truly I say to you, the tax collector and the prostitute, yeah, they're going to get into my kingdom before you. And we need to realize the tax collector and the prostitute, they're the bottom of the barrel of Jewish culture and society. The common Jew probably didn't even think they were in the barrel. They're just like, they're, on the, they're out. Like they're, they're on the side of the road, left for dead. Okay, so tax collectors were, were Jewish people who Rome hired to collect taxes from fellow Jews to pay Rome. The Jews hated the fact that they were under this foreign authority. They didn't want Rome to rule over them in any way, shape, or form. And that's their reality. And so they hired insiders to collect the taxes. And the general public hated tax collectors. And prostitutes, well, I don't think I need to explain to you uh, what prostitutes are. But here's the deal. Prostitutes are perpetually breaking the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. And they're causing others to do the same thing. So here you have the, the, the most despised in the culture. And Jesus is saying, guess what, super religious people? They're getting in before you. Ooh, that would have been a punch to the face. That would have probably been the worst thing Jesus could have said to offend them but he is revealing their hearts that they really could care less about honoring God. They just want the praise of men. And Jesus goes on to explain. He says, John came to you in the way of righteousness and you didn't believe. But even the tax collectors, even the prostitutes, even the lowest of society, the most messed up, they heard John and they believed. They knew. He was preaching and teaching in line with the word of God. He was preaching with authority and power from God, and you couldn't deny it. And so after all the crowds, all the people are going out to see John and saying, he truly is a prophet, the spiritual leader's like, well, we got to go find out for ourselves. And that's where it says, you saw it yourself. They went out, too, to hear John preach, and they concluded, no, we can't believe he's from God. We don't want to believe he is from God. So Jesus in this passage is condemning their disbelief. Their disbelief in the one who is foretold to be the forerunner and the disbelief in the one who was to come, the Christ himself who is in his temple. This is important. And what we learn from Jesus and what's important for us today to realize is that the recipients of God's kingdom are not the ones who think they have their act together or the ones who can appear like they're super spiritual. It's the ones who have believed the message and ministry of Jesus Christ. 
You see, Jesus declared that we are all dirty in need of cleansing. Jesus declared that we are, as a people, spiritually sick in need of a spiritual physician. Jesus declared that every human being on their own, apart from God, is broken in need of being put back together and separated from God in need to be brought back into relationship with God. And Jesus declares that he is the only one that has the power to do that. And for God's people, the only way that can be received is through faith in what God has done, through trusting in what God has already done. And I hope at at some level in your heart as we look back that God fulfilled his promises through sending John and God fulfilled his promises through sending Jesus that 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 allows us to believe him in the present, that he is faithful to his promises and that while they might not unfold in the time frame that you and I want them to, they will unfold. For God's word stands for all eternity. And only God is the one who has the power to baptize us in the Holy Spirit, to bring us to life spiritually, and to purify us by the cleansing power of fire. The past promises that God has already fulfilled should be those mile markers we look back on and say, look at what he has done. I know he is going to be faithful today and tomorrow and for all eternity. And the question I have for us this morning is where do you find your mind and your heart as we enter into this Christmas season? What's consuming you? What are you thinking about? What are you longing for this Christmas? What is filling you with joyful anticipation as you think about this next month? Maybe you find yourself today here at church just giving lip service to God. Like, yeah, I know I should go to church. Yeah, I know Christmas is about Jesus, but that's really not exciting to me. That's really not what's important. Maybe you come in here today and you feel more like one of the spiritual leaders of that day. You feel like you have your act together. You feel like you're pretty good. You feel like you really don't need a Savior. Or maybe you find yourself resonating a little bit more with the tax collector or the prostitute. You're in a place where you know, man, I I am pretty broken inside. I, I, I can be messed up in a lot of ways. And yet, as you hear the promises and the hope of Jesus Christ, you find yourself believing and being filled with joy, being filled with life and hope because of what God has done. Well, here's the thing. No matter where you are right now, no matter what's been consuming your mind and your heart this past week or this morning even before coming here, the answer for all of us this Christmas season is the same. For every single one of us, and it's so simple, turn your eyes upon Jesus. That's the answer. Look to Jesus. The only way to remember what God has done and being faithful to his promises is to look back. On Jesus. The only way to be filled with anticipation as we look forward to the future that God has promised unto us is to turn our eyes upon Jesus. 
That is the daily answer for the believer in this life. That is how we keep our hope and anticipation aligned with what truly matters and what will ultimately be the greatest reality we will ever know. I'm going to close with this quote that really stirred my heart this past week from a book called How People Change, and it says this, There will be a day when you stand before God's throne. You won't be anxious with shame or fearful with guilt. As you stand before him, you will be like him because his grace made you a participant in his divine nature. In that moment, you will not be celebrating the physical gifts of earthbound life. Your heart will overflow with the realization that God has been victorious. The battles of change and growth are forever past. The final destination is his presence and throne room. Together, dressed in white robes of righteousness and crowned with glory, we will celebrate the one thing worth living for, the Lamb and His salvation. This is where God is taking you. Will you pray with me?